Welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic, and this is Father John Arnold. We're in the first week of Lent, and it's the story of Mark talking about how Jesus was tempted in the desert. You know, Mark is the shortest of the Gospels, and I thought the best characterization I ever heard of Mark was it's a guy's version of the Gospel. You know, ladies, your husband comes home, you've heard he's talked to Ernie, Ernie and Judith, his wife, are having problems. You ask your husband, so what did Ernie say about his marriage? And he said, the husband said, oh, I don't know, you know, a couple of things, I guess, they're having problems. But, but what did he say? How long did you talk with him for? Well, we talked a couple of hours. And all you can get is he was having some problems. That's the guy's version of things. In Mark's gospel, Jesus sees a fig tree and curses it. Next day he walks back, it withers. And so it just boom, 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 stuff happens in Mark's gospel. If you want an explanation, well, gosh, turn to John, because he writes beautifully. Even Matthew and Luke explain things more. But in in St. Mark's version of Jesus being tempted in the desert, it says he's baptized by John the Baptist. He goes into the desert where he's uh, tempted by Satan. And uh, then wild animals and angels minister to him. Boom, boom, boom. Uh, the guy's version of things. You know, all the Gospels tell the story slightly different. In substance, they're all the same. But you know, even in the Eucharist, the, the um, uh, narrative of, of the Last Supper is slightly different amongst the Gospels. But the substance is the same. These are human biographies of Jesus, and they are biographies, uh, but they emphasize different things for different reasons. And so St. Mark, according to Papias, who was uh, early to middle second century uh, church father, says that Mark was Peter's interpreter, that is, that Mark's gospel is actually Peter's gospel. So Jesus goes, he's tempted, he comes out of the desert and immediately says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You know, 40 days, when you hear 40 days, you're always talking about a symbol um, it, because it's about purification. So in the story of Noah, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. The Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 days. There's always different examples of 40 days because numbers mean something in the scripture. When the number seven is used, like in Mark's gospel, I think it's in chapter eight, when uh, Jesus feeds the people in the wilderness um, and uh, he has seven bread baskets left over. Well, seven's always a sign of a covenant because those stories about feeding people out there is about preparing the disciples for the Eucharist. And whenever you hear the number 12, it's 12 tribes, 12 apostles. Well, 40 days is this time of purification that prepares Jesus. You don't have in Mark's gospel the, you know, uh, turn these rocks into bread or uh, jump off the highest parapet of the temple and, and everybody will look at you because God will save you, right? Um, it just says, he was tempted, he came out, he said, repent, uh, believe the good news, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There is one interesting detail in how Mark tells this story, which we all know well, I think. And that is, I think he's the only one that says, 
wild beasts and angels ministered to him. Because that is probably a reference back to Eden, where Adam named all the animals. Adam was uh, basically the friend of the animals. And that angels ministered to him is this um, this uh, unmediated experience of the divine. And so in Mark's gospel in the temptation of the desert, the new Adam, that is Jesus, meets and confronts Satanas, which means uh, the accuser, the adversary, Satanas, Satan. And uh, he triumphs, but he'll meet him again at the end, right? Uh, and he'll triumph. And that really brings us to what the first Sunday of Lent is about. And it's really in the second reading from uh, 1 Peter. So now we're going to turn to 1 Peter, and we're going to talk about how 1 Peter brings the strands of the first reading about Noah and the story of Jesus and his temptation in the desert together. It's really an interesting story. And so Jesus is the new Adam. He walks out of the desert. It used to be the Garden of Eden, but now the world is a desert. And the evil spirits run amok there, but he's reestablishing a new covenant. And he says, metanoia, that is change your mind, repent. Um, this is at the heart of all the gospels, the use of typology. Seeing Jesus Christ in all of these Old Testament stories and figures because none of them doubted that you were saved through baptism and that baptism was how you participated in the cross because they had a strong sacrificial sense. You had to participate in, in the sacrifice and baptism was the way that you, you participated and you get the gift of the spirit is what it says in First Peter. And of course, I think I mentioned last week that the Eucharist is this part of the oblation where part of the, sac part of the sacrifice goes up to heaven and the other part, the priest, that's you and me, uh, consume it. You change how you see things because ultimately the gospel has morality to teach, but fundamentally it's about a worldview and it makes historical claims. And so one of these historical claims is about the past, and it's about the story of Noah. And so in the first reading, God said to Noah and to his sons with him, see, I'm now establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, with every living creature that was with you, all the birds and the various tame and wild animals that were with you and came out of the ark. I will establish my covenant with you but never again shall all bodily creatures be destroyed by the waters of a flood. There shall not be another flood to devastate the earth. In 1 Peter, Peter refers back to the story of Noah as a typology. You know, when I said historical claims, I wasn't really talking about Noah as much as I was talking about Jesus. But the story of Noah is what Peter uses to talk about baptism. Because in 1 Peter, in the reading today, what St. Peter said was, the story of Noah prefigured baptism, which saves you now. 
You know, in Romans 6, it says, don't you know that all who were baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Because it's also Romans that many quote that says, when you confess on your lips and you believe in your heart, you are saved. But it's what brings you to baptism. Baptism is the participation in the crucifixion. So Peter goes on to say, it's not a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. It's not the only place in Romans and in 1 Peter where this appears. In Acts of the Apostles, this is very much Petrine preaching. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, verses 38 to 40. Here's what it says. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is made to you and to your children, to all those far off, whomever the Lord our God will call. He testified with many other arguments and was exhorting them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Repent, change your mind, and be baptized. It's the preaching of Jesus taken down into what it is we must do and why baptism is so fundamental in the Christian life. Because baptism wipes out sin like the flood wiped out uh, the sinfulness of humanity. Uh, You know, in the rite of baptism, if you bring a child to be baptized, uh, the priest will uh, read these words. O God, whose spirit in the first moment of the world's creation hovered over the waters so that the very substance of water would even then take to itself the power to sanctify. O God, who by the outpouring of the flood overshadowed regeneration so that from the mystery of one and the same element of water would come an end of vice and a beginning of virtue. So that story of Noah is held up as an example of death to sin so that we can live. You know, the story of Noah fits into this larger narrative. If you remember, Adam and Eve are given one command, don't eat the fruit of that tree. They fail in it. And then they have two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain slays Abel. Then they have the third son named Seth. And that leads to these two different lines of um, Cain and Seth. Uh, And This is where the story of the Nephilim comes in. If you remember that from, I think, chapter 5, what it referred to as the sons of God. And is it that they're dealing with Greek mythology about the gods that come down from heaven and want to, Olympus rather, and want to sleep with uh, earthly beauties? But what they blame for it, blame them for, is that it brings violence. Uh, Their sexual relations become like conquest, just like everything else. Uh, if you remember, Cain uh, kills Abel, but his great-grandson Lamech said, you know, uh, Cain killed one man, my grandpa killed seven, I'll kill 70. The idea of the increasing violence of the world, which is what the story of Noah responds to. Uh, but keep in mind that story of the Nephilim, because the sons of God is also part of this story. Because I want to turn to another interesting aspect of 1 Peter. Did you get that part in 1 Peter where he says that being Jesus, being put to death in the flesh, 
but made alive in the spirit in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, what's that all about? Who are these spirits in prison? You know, there's been three different ways that um, they've thought of, uh, of uh, these the, the spirits in prison. So the first is Aquinas and Augustine. Um, they thought that the spirits in prison that Jesus went to preach to were in fact the Nephilim, that they went, that he went back to the sons of God whose violence had brought on the flood. Um, you know, it's, it's part of the, the narrative because Augustine and Aquinas are very scriptural. And so especially with First Peter reference to Noah, at least the context would make it make sense. Modern scripture scholars look at it a little different. They think that what was being referred to was the, that Jesus went and preached to the fallen angels, those that had sided with uh, Satan, and that he was basically going to proclaim his victory over them and over death. Um, but the third part is the part that I think makes the most sense, that he went to the, preach to the spirits in prison that he went to Hades or descended into hell. Do you remember in the Athanasian Creed when it said uh, he descended into hell and on the third day rose from the dead? You know, when we think of hell, we think of this place of eternal punishment because it is. But the word hell is actually a Nordic word. She was a goddess the guard of the gates to the underworld. And the Nordic underworld was something like Hades. It wasn't a place of judgment and punishment. Uh, there, I guess people there are being punished, but we think of it as exclusively a place of judgment and punishment. And so ancient church fathers like Clement of Alexandria and others thought that Jesus went down to the souls of the dead in Hades, and so he rescued Adam and Eve and Noah. He rescued Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the 12 sons of Jacob. He rescued Moses and David, all of these who had died before receiving baptism. Because it's one of the things that you probably remember growing up is, you know, how do we Catholics, if baptism is necessary for salvation, how do we deal with uh, all these good people who uh, are not baptized. You know, the Orthodox calendar, the Orthodox Christianity, actually has on their calendar saints from before the time of Jesus. So I think Elijah and Elisha are on their calendar. I believe Moses is on their calendar. Because of this understanding of Jesus going into Hades or Sheol, as it was known in amongst the Hebrew speakers, and uh, raising um, Adam and Eve from the dead. Uh, there's an icon, I'm gonna have it even, I actually used it as a piece of artwork on uh, for this little podcast of picking up Adam and Eve and raising them up out of the tomb. It, it also had a large place, this understanding of what it meant to preach to the souls in prison. And he descended amongst the dead. He descended into hell, um, which is a Northern European word for Hades. Because um, Hades, I think, is an unfamiliar word. But this is interesting. Um, 
Dante's Divine Comedy is in three parts. The Inferno, the Purgatorio, and the Commedia. I mean the um, uh, Paradiso. All three are the Commedia, the comedy of human life. That has a happy ending. That's a comedy. The happy ending is union with God. Well, Dante's lost in midlife. He meets Virgil, um, this philosopher, and the philosopher walks him through hell. And then the philosopher introduces him to a saint in purgatory. And then the saints in purgatory help him out through heaven. And the idea is, is that wisdom, ancient philosophy, can actually bring you to faith. But you need revelation. You need these saints. Well, anyway, he enters into the inferno. And if you remember, there's this huge gate that says, justice has erected this gate. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. There's some other things there too. But those two things are the key. Justice, because the inferno, hell, is for Dante and the Christian tradition, a place of justice. That's exactly what it is. The problem with hell is that there's no mercy in it. Um, there's nothing but justice. And uh, trying to make everything right uh, not forgiving anything, it, it's just going to create a hell on earth. Um, but here's Dante in the third book of the Inferno. And Virgil, his philosopher, is leading him into the dark. And they're going down amongst the unbaptized. And since Dante is such an important Christian text, I want you to hear what he wrote. <clears throat> so dark and deep and nebulous it was, Try as I might to force my sight below, I could not see the shape of anything. Let us descend into the sightless world, began the poet. His face was deathly pale. I will go first, and you will follow me. And I, aware of his changed colors, said, How can I go on if you are frightened? You are my constant strength when I lose heart. And he to me, The anguish of the souls that are down here paints my face with pity, which you have wrongly taken to be fear. Let us go. The long road urges us. He entered then, leading the way for me down to the first circle of the abyss. Down there, to judge only by what I heard, there were no wails, but just the sounds of sighs rising and trembling through the timeless air. The sounds of sighs, of untormented grief, burdening these groups, diverse and teeming, made up of men and women and of infants. Then the good master said, You do not ask what sort of souls are these you see around you. Now you should know before we go on further, they have not sinned. But their great worth alone was not enough, for they did not know baptism, which is the gateway to the faith you follow. And if they came before the birth of Christ, they did not worship God the way one should. I myself am a member of this group. For this defect and for no other guilt, we are here lost. In this alone we suffer. Cut off from hope, we live on in desire. The words I heard weighed heavy on my heart. To think that souls as virtuous as these were suspended in that limbo and forever. Tell me, my teacher, tell me, O oh master, I began wishing to have confirmed by him the teachings of unerring Christian doctrine. Did any ever leave here through his merit or with another's help and go to bliss? And he who understood my hidden question answered, 
I was a novice in this place when I saw a mighty Lord descend to us who wore the sign of victory as his crown. He took from us the shade of our first parent, of Abel, his good son, of Noah, too, and of obedient Moses, who made the laws, Abram, the patriarch, David, the king, Israel, with his father and his children, with Rachel, whom he worked so hard to win, and many more he chose for blessedness. And you should know, before these souls were taken, no human soul had ever reached salvation. Well, it's really worth reading. I love the comedy. I've been through it about twice. And it's really just full of theology and scripture. But also Dante wrestles with these uh, problems of salvation prevented by, uh, presented by the doctrine of baptism. So here's how Catholics deal with it. What we say is this, is that God binds himself to the sacraments, but God is not in turn bound by the sacraments. Dante himself, interestingly enough, he and Virgil go all the way down to hell where uh, the very pit of hell where it's not fire, there's fire on the upper reaches, but it's uh, ice where Satan with his three heads chewing on Brutus, Cassius, and Judas is uh, frozen in ice and his wings beating. And the very act of his beating his wings is what keeps him frozen in ice. He can't escape God. He can only run away. But you can't run very far as it turns out. And so when they climb up his hairy leg and come out the other side, they go to this Mount Purgatory, reaching up into the sky. And as they land on the beach, which is not yet Purgatory, the seven-story mountain, they land on the beach, there to meet them, is Cato. Cato the Elder, who committed suicide rather than be uh, captured by Julius Caesar 40 or 50 years before Jesus' birth. What the heck is Cato doing there? Because he's a pagan. Is Dante sneaking him into purgatory? Well, I think you know what he his where his uh, his feelings lie. This idea uh, that the sacraments are for the human benefit, but God has His own ways. Unfortunately, in our time, that's become kind of a universalism. Uh, many roads to God means it really doesn't matter what you do with your life. But you know, with Dante, everybody who had a shot at being saved were noble pagans, noble Jews uh, who were raised by Jesus. But you know, if St. Mark was going to tell Dante's story, Dante's story goes on for, I think it's 33 Cano's Inferno, 33 in Purgatory, and I think maybe 34 in the, in the Paradiso. Uh, so it's pretty long, but it's it's really it's really good. Best to go through it with a guide like Virgil or uh, some of these people online who are very good at walking you through it. But if Mark was telling the story, what would it be? Uh, you know, he went down there and uh, Virgil was there. He said a guy came and kicked the gate in, took a bunch of Jews with him and then left. And, and then we went on and uh, pretty soon we got to purgatory. It's just, it's the rest of the stories that are interesting. And so... The story of 1 Peter, the necessity of baptism for salvation in the early preaching of the church, that Jesus visited the souls of the dead, whether it's the angelic spirits that had rebelled against God or whether it's Adam and Eve and everybody else in, 
in uh, limbo. But that how that is seen in the other gospels, if you look in Matthew's crucifixion scene, when Matthew dies, I mean, I'm sorry, when Jesus dies on the cross in Matthew's gospel, I think it's chapter 27, you can go look at it. Suddenly the veil in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. The mercy seat is open. And then the bodies of many saints buried around Jerusalem rose from the dead and they went into town to visit people. You see that idea of, of going down amongst the dead and raising them up, that's what's behind Matthew's story. Because Matthew tells a more involved story than Mark. If Matthew is married to your sister, she'd much rather like listening to his stories than Mark's stories. So why don't we turn to the conclusion? So the necessity of baptism, you know, St. John, when he wrote the Gospel of John, now John's a guy who can tell the story. He's a great storyteller. But when it comes to chapter 19 of John, verses 33 to 35, when Jesus dies on the cross, and we'll read this story on Good Friday, uh, this account of Jesus' death. Uh, John says, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one soldier thrust his lance into his side and immediately blood and water flowed out. And eyewitnesses testified and his testimony is true. He knows that he is speaking the truth so that you may come to believe. So John, this is where John steps into the gospel and says, I saw this, this actually happened. Um, the idea of this water coming uh, out of the side of Jesus. You know, uh, cardiologists have said that, you know, when you die of asphyxiation, the, the sac that surrounds your heart can fill up with water. So there's a natural sign, but all signs are natural signs. It's how God uses nature to point to something else, whether it's the waters of the flood or it's this prelapsarian meal of seed-bearing plants and seed-bearing fruits that we call the Eucharist, bread and wine, or baptism, which doesn't just clean us, as St. Peter says in, in chapter 3 of Peter, but washes us clean and gives us a claim to a good conscience through Christ. But remember how all of this started. It started with Jesus going into the desert that used to be the Garden of Eden. And there he meets temptation. But he doesn't fall into temptation. Here's what St. Gregory the Pope said about this. He said, temptation is brought to fulfillment by three stages, suggestion, delight, and consent. And we in temptation generally fall through delight and then through consent, for being begotten of the sin of the flesh, we bear within us that through which we suffer conflict. In other words, we're subject to concupiscence, that weakness and inclination to sin that we're born with as a result of original sin, Gregory says. Then he continues, but God incarnate came into the world without sin and so suffers no conflict within himself. He could therefore be tempted by suggestion, but the delight of sin could never touch his mind. So all these temptations of the devil are from without, not from within him. Hey, that's kind of interesting. Temptations, there's three parts. Francis de Sales, has basically the three, same three parts. I think you must get it from Gregory. Um, you're, something suggested to you, 
you let your mind wander and take this weird delight in it, then you give into it thinking it'll be fun. The way that you bail out is the same place where Jesus bailed out, right at suggestion. Because you know where this stuff goes. This is the light of Christ. You know that it seems like it's delightful. It's going to be wonderful, but it really isn't. It's a few moments of excitement and then a lot of regret. It's what we say about what happiness is. Happiness is really good conscience and good relationships with others. Yeah, you get a nice raise, but two weeks later, your spending has just changed to match the raise. Uh, there's something about just being happy where we're at so that when we're given greater gifts in the kingdom of heaven, we're prepared for them. So this Lent, what would you take out of this? Thank God for your baptism. Um, think about this story of Christ's descent among the dead. That is, he reaches out into the future, he reaches back into the past because he's God. All of humanity raised up in him. And then, how do you participate? Because Jesus is the light of the world. And that light enlightens your conscience. So you know what you're hearing is wrong. It may take you a couple of minutes to figure it out. Before it, if it, before it gets too delightful, you bail out before you get to consent. Because Lent is about war on sin, war against our appetites. And so, thanks for taking a little time to listen to the stories. The scriptures are so interesting. Uh, and remember that uh, all through Lent, we'll be talking about the story of the Old Testament and how it opened up the story of Christ to the church and how we still live in that story. This has been Father John Arnold, and this has been Oro Valley Catholic.